according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scripture. Join me once again in the book of Leviticus. We are finishing Leviticus today. Between this hour and next hour, we should uh, complete the book of Leviticus. This hour is day 58 in the Through the Bible reading, and uh, today we're going to cover day 58, 59, before lunch, and then we have our lunch break with a potluck, and then we come back in the afternoon for day 60 and 61. So uh, we're going to be recording four of our uh, Through the Bible lessons today, and looking forward to completing Leviticus after chapter 27, moving on to Numbers chapter 1, and then after lunch we'll have Numbers two through five. So that kind of gives you a a schedule for where we're going. Before we do begin today, let's take a moment for silent prayer and commit our time for the glory of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you once again thankful for grace and truth rejoicing in so many answers to prayer that you have provided uh, overnight and throughout these recent days. We continue to uh, to lift up our friends and family that are in Ukraine that are currently in harm's way. And uh, just thank you for uh, getting the Myers out and, and, and Robbie. All of these answers to prayer, Father, we give you the praise and the glory. We thank you also for uh, this time set before us now and the Word of God as we're reading day by day, seven days a week, studying seven times a week. And just so thankful that uh, you've opened up this, uh, this Through the Bible series. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so before we do anything else, um, for day 58 in Through the Bible, uh, the, it's titled Blessings and Punishments, and that's the, the heading that uh, we were given in the Ron Rhodes uh, reading material. Um, but I, I colored it red for a reason, and that was so that I wouldn't forget that in the devotional itself, there's about five places in the devotional itself that are problematic. And and by problematic, uh, it means that he's presenting a view of something that's different than how we teach it here. And so I want to just highlight it so that as you read it, you'll uh, you'll encounter it for what it is. Uh, So this is the Ron Rhodes devotional on uh, blessings and punishments. Again, it's Leviticus 25, 24 through 26, 46. And as he, uh, he says, yesterday we focused on various festivals, the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee. Today we consider blessings for obedience and punishments for disobedience. Nothing wrong with that. It's a great introduction to Leviticus 26. Key concept, choices have consequences. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I'm loving this. All right, big picture. God's covenant with Israel was conditional. Don't confuse this with the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. I would say Amen. The Mosaic Covenant is conditional. And so long as they obey, they will reap the blessings, but when they disobey, they will reap discipline. God's covenant said that if the people obeyed the covenant stipulations, they would enjoy great blessings, thrive in the land, and God would be with them. If, however, the people disobeyed the stipulations, God would withdraw his presence, and the people would experience the punishment enumerated in the covenant. And this is what we're going to study today. And this is what happens when you get into the five cycles of discipline from Leviticus 26, national discipline for the covenant nation. We're going to deal with that as well. 
Old Testament history reveals the Israelites disobeyed God often and consequently suffered the, uh, the consequences. And I agree, they, they were disobedient far more than they were obedient, just on a, on a ratio uh, of that. Now, here's the, here's the problem though. Transformational truth. In the New Testament, our lives as Christians are centered on the New Covenant. And that's a common view, and I'm not ridiculing Rhodes for holding it, but it is not how we teach the New Covenant at, uh, at Austin Bible Church. Our lives as Christians are centered on salvation by grace through faith and the royal family of God as we function in the church age. How about that? Can I, can I rewrite the paragraph on a, on a better basis? Anyway, this is what he says. Um, our lives as Christians are centered on the New Covenant, an unconditional covenant God made with humankind in which he promised to provide for total forgiveness of sin based entirely on the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he cites Jeremiah 31, and he cites 1 Corinthians 11 as proof text, and he's absolutely wrong, and it's, it's heartbreaking to me. So uh, there's going to be about five times in this book that he's going to go very explicitly to say that the new covenant is in effect right here, right now, and we are party to the new covenant. Okay, when If you take the time to read Jeremiah 31, 30. Uh, one and following. It's days are coming and we're not there yet, declares the Lord. In fact, verse 33 specifically says it's after those days. It can't come until the, the tribulation is complete. But days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And it's not with humankind. It's not with the church. It's not with anybody other than the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, so to try to convince me that I'm under the new covenant today because God made the new covenant with humankind is, uh, is, is just not biblical. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. All right, was it my fathers he took by the hand out of the land of Egypt? No, it was their fathers. It was Israel. Israel was party to the Mosaic Covenant. The New Covenant is the replacement for the Mosaic Covenant. So the New Covenant is with Israel, not with the church. Jesus is the mediator. We are ministers, but that won't happen until we get there. Again, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So it's after those days in this context, center back on the previous material in chapter 30 and 31, dealing with the day of the Lord, dealing with the wrath of of the coming tribulation. I will put my law within them, on their heart I will write it, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Again, they, 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 they is Israel and it has nothing to do with the church. They will not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother. Here's Here's more proof that this can't possibly apply to the church. Because why am I up here teaching today if, in fact, the new covenant is in effect and nobody's teaching any, uh, any, anyone once again? Because everyone would know, okay? This is a millennial condition for Jewish people, and it's equipping them to serve the Gentiles for the thousand-year reign of Christ. All right, so stay tuned for that. We're going to have more to say when we get to the new covenant, when we get to Jeremiah 31. Uh, this is only the first of, I think, about five places where... Um, I just have to alert you guys that there is it. And, and I don't want to get the wrong impression either. I love the Ron Rhodes devotional. I think it's great. It's a great reading schedule. He's on target more often than not, and we have a lot of like-mindedness. This is just one particular area where we are not like-minded, and, uh, and I don't want my flock to get confused with, uh, 
with his approach to the new covenant. All right, so having said that, we have to get through, and we left off on Thursday, we got halfway through chapter 25, and so now we're going to wrap up chapter 25, starting with verse 24 and following. That'll take us to the end of the chapter, and then we have all of chapter 26. And that's what we're going to cover this hour. And the, the, the bulk of this will be chapter 26, with the divine discipline upon the Jewish people. But let's uh, talk about the law of redemption. What starts off here in verse 24 is talking about redemption. Property may be redeemed, and people may be redeemed. And we're going to see this spelled out in verses 24 through 34 in terms of the property, and then in terms of people in verses 35 through 55. So picking up in Leviticus 25:24, it says, Thus, for every piece of your property you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his kinsman or what his relative has sold. Or in the case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption. Then he shall calculate the year since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it and so return to his property. And there's a calendar at work with respect to this too. We studied Thursday night with respect to the uh, the year of Jubilee. And at the year of Jubilee, he's going to get it back anyway. That's the that's why they've got to count the calendar and prorate it and understand what the, uh, the, the, the buyer is entitled to when the man is redeeming it back. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property. Likewise, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city. Now, walled cities are different. Walled cities are not part of the land grant, not part of the uh, inheritance that is passed on and conveyed through the tribes, the clans, the families, and the households. All right, Walled cities are different. If it is not bought, uh, so verse 29, likewise, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it's not bought back for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser throughout his generations. It does not revert in the Jubilee. Okay, so there's a distinction between the rural and the urban, between the, the land grants and the property that, that is uh, a, uh, an inheritance within the tribe, clan, family, and household, and then the, the residences, the domiciles. The, uh, and it doesn't matter what the structure is. Don't confuse the, the fact that a building is called a house uh, or, or whatever the structure is that they're living in. Don't confuse that. The distinction is the rural versus the walled city. All right. Houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities which are their possession. And we'll, we'll be talking about the cities of refuge and the Levitical cities when the land grants are granted, when they conquer, and when they are established. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed, and a house sale in the city of this possession reverts in the Jubilee, for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the sons of Israel. The pasture fields of their cities shall not be sold, for that is their perpetual possession. All right, so we have the details there. 
couple of things I want to to get ahead of myself here in the notes. Um, So understand, under the law of redemption, property may be redeemed, people may be redeemed. We haven't gotten to that yet. That's coming up next in verses 35 and following. Uh, Recognize under point B, God promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham and to his descendants. And so this is a promise God has made with every generation of Jewish people that are going to be living in this land. The division of the land under Joshua was not the fulfillment of that covenant promise. And then this is where we got to be a little bit careful and say, well, yes and no. Um, yes, they conquered. Yes, they moved in. Yes, they, they began to reside in the land as a nation. But what else do we understand happened there at the same time? They failed to drive out all the Canaanites. They failed to appropriate much of the land by faith. There was tremendous failure. And what do we learn in Hebrews? We learn that Joshua did not give them rest. That God was still speaking of a promised rest as a future promise, not fulfilled in the days of Joshua. And when we see here in verse 23, um, we see a couple of things here. Uh, It says, first of all, the land moreover shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. He goes on to say, you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Israel is going to continue to function as an alien and a sojourner, even though they are already in the land. This is, I think this is missed a lot of times, and I think this is significant, especially for our study here today. Israel was to consider themselves as aliens and sojourners, even as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. And so that is an attitude, that is a mindset, and they're supposed to keep that mindset after Joshua's conquest, throughout the judges, throughout the kingdom period, throughout the divided kingdom period. They should still be viewing themselves as aliens and strangers, even though, yes, they are residing in the land, but what's the difference? They're residing in the land under a conditional covenant with promises of discipline and promises of expulsion. And they're not going to enjoy their land during the time that they're in rebellion, when they're cast into into captivity, when they're removed from their land under divine discipline. So the fulfillment of this really comes about in the millennium. It's not until the millennium that they can stop viewing themselves as aliens and strangers. It's not until all of Israel is together in the millennium, including the resurrected Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when all of the generations of the Jewish people are together in the millennium, then they will live in the land securely, in peace, never to, never to be judged and destroyed again. I don't want us to lose that as we work our way through uh, this chapter and even more so next chapter in Leviticus 26. Uh, some of this came up as we were teaching it in Hebrews 11. Uh, All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now that obviously applies to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but what we don't think about, what this chapter today is telling us, it applies to every generation of Israel until the kingdom comes, until Jesus Christ comes and sits on the throne of David. If a Hebrew was forced to sell part of his inheritance, then it was the will of God for the land to be redeemed by a kinsman or by himself. God is so insistent upon these eternal uh, blessings, these covenant blessings, these inheritance blessings going to the people that he designed it for. That selling it off 
uh, even though it was necessary because of conflict or, or difficulties or struggles and whatnot, recognizing that sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do. You've got to sell your assets. You've got to live. You've got to eat. Uh, and so because of hardships, because of financial difficulties, in some cases because of war or other circumstances that are not ideal in the life of a nation, you do what you need to do. And so many Jewish people are going to be forced to sell their, to sell their property. Some even sell their children, sell their family members into slavery. Another uh, bankruptcy procedure in the ancient world that we struggle to understand in our generation today. But if, uh, if that was a, a circumstance that came about with a poor kinsman who was put in that condition, then a near kinsman who had the means to redeem, to redeem it was obligated. He needed to. He was, it was his blessing to do so in support of his kinsmen in this process. So it was the will of God for that land to be redeemed by a kinsman or by himself. And some of these doctrines are important because they're teaching principles of redemption on a political basis, on a secular basis, but they're also pointing ahead to our redemption, to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and what happens when we get redeemed. Because when we get redeemed, it's very clear, it's a purchase price we can't pay ourselves. None of us can redeem ourselves. We might be able to redeem land, we can redeem property, we can redeem family members, at least as far as their, their uh, secular life is concerned. But we, to, uh, to redeem a soul? How do you redeem a soul? You know, the whole world is valued, you know, uh, less than a, a single human soul. What would we, how would we redeem ourselves in, from the slave market of sin? We can't. Only God can do that. So this doctrine is, is so vital. If redemption was not possible through human methods, redemption could be provided by God in the year of Jubilee. We're thankful for that. Walled cities did not enjoy the redemption rights of unwalled villages and open fields. We looked at that. The Levitical cities, however, did have the redemption rights because they were so set apart. They didn't have a tribal uh, allotment like the other tribes did. God reminded Israel that no interest was to be charged. All right, now we get to the verses we haven't read yet. Verses 35 through 38. In case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner so that he may live with you. Do not take your serious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. All right, so we have the verses there. And this is a review. We've had similar principles already in Exodus 22. He will teach the next generation the very same thing when we get to Deuteronomy 23, that uh, there are principles and blessings for loaning and gifting family members to get them through their their, uh, financial uh, seasons. Uh, They are provided for as a people under God's grace and provision. I mean, God's the one that's redeemed them. They belong to the Lord. All right. People like the land were to be redeemed if a kinsman was able to do so. When human ability cannot provide the redemption, God himself provides for the redemption in the year of Jubilee. So we get past property and now we have people. And so if a countryman of yours becomes so poor with respect to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. I mean, this was really the, this was the absolute abject poverty. You don't even own yourself anymore. That you become property for somebody else in, the, uh, in a slavery relationship. 
he shall be with you as a hired man. Okay, now we get it. He sold himself to you for slavery, but your attitude towards him should be not thinking of him as a slave, but, but treating him as a hired man. And uh, as if he were a sojourner, he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him. He shall go back to his family that he may return to the property of his forefathers. And even before the Jubilee, every seven years they were to release their Hebrew slaves. All right, so this is, uh, this is uh, plus the, the Jubilee becomes a bonus here of freedom. All right. So we have the stipulations there. As to your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. It was permissible. It was in the permissive will of God. He doesn't command them that they had to, but he said that they may. And on many occasions they would. They would acquire these slaves in the process of, of warfare, in the process of other, of other dealings. Abraham received his slave when he was sojourning in the land of, uh, of Egypt. Comes back with, uh, with Hagar. She was a bond slave related to that. All right. And it's an opportunity for them to uh, be the covenant nation, to give the gospel, to, to have, I mean, think about the blessings that a slave would have to identify with Israel instead of living back in their pagan land, wherever it was that they came from. It's an opportunity for them to hear truth, to be communicated the word of God by the, the covenant nation of Israel. All right. I'm not supporting slavery as an institution. I'm just saying that as God works all things together for good, uh, would you rather be a, a Roman slave pulling a galley across the Mediterranean? Or would you rather be a Jewish slave in the land of promise learning the truth from the covenant people of God in the Old Testament times? I mean, to me it's a no-brainer. Anyway, these other things here on slavery, these are tough to deal with because we're so separated by thousands of years and culture. But again, notice the redemption rights. The redemption rights. His un- one of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him. The rite of redemption starts with the closest kinsman, and then it branches out from there. And it may be that the closest kinsman may not have the means, may not be able to. Maybe the brother can't do it, but the uncle can. Right? So it comes down to, first of all, you must be willing to redeem. Then you have to be able to redeem. Those are the requirements. And so if the brother can't do it, the uncle can, or the cousin, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. It may be after a couple years of slavery, he's, he's uh, saved up enough and, and uh, he'll get back on his feet again. With a purchaser shall calculate from the year when he sold him to up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years, like the days of a hired man that shall be with him. Anyway, then they prorate it, and it's proportional. And there's different calculations there as well. There's also different valuations that cause a lot of angst and a lot of problems. Why, why are the men valued more than the women? And, and there's other things too, and the feminists just get up in arms. The, the issue is how much you know, productivity, how much physical labor is this slave going to produce for you while he is working for you? All right. Finally, then we have the principles here. The doctrine is taught here. The the, uh, the 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 verses say what they say. But we also have a book of our Bible that gives the greatest illustration of this, and that's the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth describes the circumstances there. In fact, it's the plot of the entire book with four chapters there, whereby uh, Ruth has to be redeemed. Actually, Naomi 
gets redeemed. And her daughter-in-law Ruth comes with a package, right, in terms of what Boaz is willing to do to redeem the property of, uh, of those husbands that had died. So if you want more on that, uh, you're going to get more on that. We've got the book of Ruth coming up. And uh, I forget where, where it is, but it is coming up. Obviously, we haven't taught it yet. Joshua Judges Ruth. There it is. It's day 100. It's day 100. So April 10th, stay tuned. We'll have the book of Ruth coming up. All right. Now we get to Leviticus 26. And this is a well-known chapter in particular if um, those, uh, those of us that have a background with Baraka Church or you've ever read an, an RB theme book, you understand that the laws of divine establishment and a lot of the principles of national destruction, um, Pastor Theme taught a lot out of this chapter and did a lot of, uh, a lot of work with it. So uh, I want to make sure we come through. I also want to maybe add some extra caveats to some things, some refinements to, uh, to remind all of us that we are not the covenant nation of Israel. We don't have the promise of five cycles. We don't have the promise of, of restoration if we are destroyed as a nation. Okay? Uh, God may wipe us out after two cycles. He's not obligated to give us the third, fourth, or fifth. He's not really obligated to give us even the first. If he wants to wipe us out tomorrow, he's free to do that. Because we don't have, the United States of America does not have claim to Leviticus 26 as if we're entitled to these cycles of discipline and all of the forbearance that, uh, that Israel has as the covenant nation that they are. So we're going to be clear on that before we depart here today. Remember chapter 19 dealt with daily personal life and began with three commandments. Chapter 26 deals with daily national life and begins with two commandments. So there's a little bit of a parallel in, in terms of the structure uh, in contrasting chapter 19 with chapter 26. And uh, we can see the two commandments here, idolatry and Sabbath observance. So chapter 26 starts off with verses 1 and 2. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So essentially you got the Ten Commandments, and now it's boiled down to just these two as the kickoff for a national um, a, a text that's describing the national expectations and the consequences. And, and it helps us, I tell you, it helps us immensely if we learn to divide our thinking between individual responsibilities and national responsibilities. When we talk about individual personal sin and we talk about national sin or national corporate sin because those are separate realities and God tracks them all. And so I think sometimes we we end up confusing passages when, when we're taking them personally or individually and God is communicating them nationally. Okay? And, and fundamentally, um, what, what, what was I talking about at the beginning of this hour when I was talking about how Ron Rhodes and others, how they misread the New Covenant realities, the New Covenant promises, and, and they, see, they see a text in Jeremiah 31 that says, I will remember your sins no more. And then they get all excited thinking, hey, that, that's got to be me, right? I'm a believer. I'm forgiven. I'm, uh, my sins are forgiven. I'm saved. 
and not realizing that in Jeremiah 31 he's talking about the national sins of Israel who has rejected their duties under the Mosaic Covenant and has gone so far as to crucify their Messiah when he arrived in the first century. That is a nation with a tremendous amount of national sin and national guilt that has to be dealt with by God himself and that's more of the work that Jesus was doing on the cross. More than just saving us dealing nationally with the sins of Israel and preparing to bring them under the new covenant. So stay tuned. We'll have more to uh, to deal with that. All right, so we have the um, rule of thumb for blessings in national daily life or commandments number two and four. Keep clear of idolatry and keep the Sabbath devotion to the Lord. And uh, by taking the uh, the idolatry imperative and the Sabbath observance, taking those two this chapter is actually starting off with a pretty simple rule of thumb. I mean, how tough is that? Keep clear of idolatry and keep the Sabbath devotion to the Lord. You know, just, just as, a, as a baseline for national uh, blessing versus national discipline, those two commandments is going to take their nation a long ways. And violating those commandments is going to take their nation a long ways the other direction, towards displeasure and judgment and wrath. Israel was chosen as God's holy nation in the midst of all Gentile nations. So Leviticus 26 presents principles for national blessing and national cursing. So they're the prototype. They're the, they're the, uh, they're the example that's set. And a, and a Gentile nation who wants to emulate their laws can do so. A Gentile nation who wants to structure their criminal code or their civil code uh, on a basis that's comparable to Israel's criminal code and civil code uh, they can be rewarded for that. They're going to have a system of laws. They're going to have a system of public morality that's going to be uh, harmonious with God's own nature and God's own standards and uh, and so forth. So if uh, as a Gentile nation, if we have laws against murder, we have laws against stealing, we have laws against uh, against these things, we're going to be lined up for blessing because we're compatible with God's moral law. All right, does that make sense? But if we pass laws that are contrary to God's laws, in other words, we become pro-murder. Who does that? Well, some cultures are actually full of bloodshed and violence, all right? And yeah, you can murder all you want as long as it's still in the womb. I mean, that's legally sanctioned. So um, also the the sexual laws and all the stuff that made us uncomfortable talking all that sex stuff last week, that uh, all those laws... We've got a culture that doesn't make any of that illegal. Adultery and homosexuality and all that. And it's, it's perfectly legal and it's celebrated. Again, a Gentile nation can either be in conformity with God's ideal or in defiance of God's ideal. And we face, we face those consequences. The promises to Israel apply only to Israel in accordance with their covenant relationship to the Lord. We can't claim their promises unless we're going to go full-scale replacement theology and call God a liar, okay? Because God will not lie. He did not lie to David, did not lie to, to Abraham. He still has a future for Israel. The principles, though, can be applied by any Gentile nation for divine national blessing or divine national cursing. I'm going to try to spell that out with greater detail also. So, divine national blessings are contingent upon national obedience to the revealed word of God. Leviticus 26, 3 and following. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out. 
Now this means that they're studying the Word of God, they're learning the Word of God, and they're living the Word of God. They're making the Word of God their standard for national policy. Not just learning about it, living it. Big difference if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments to carry them out. Then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear uh, their fruit. You know, agricultural consequences, economic consequences, and the, um, the yield of any particular harvest or the, uh, the profit of any particular season of, of, uh, of labor or industry. And the blessings come from God, and then the removal of those blessings comes from God. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I will also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. Now this all sounds great. Okay, sign me up, right? You know, God bless America. But notice, I will confirm my covenant with you. So any, as, so far as we can adapt by analogy, so far as we can adapt principles uh, in, in a similar way, even with all the adaptation in a similar way, even if we're to be maximum biblical in all that we do, we are not the covenant nation of God. And so when it says, I will confirm my covenant with you, we have no such covenant. That is, politically, the, the, the nation we live in does not. Israel is the only nation in the history of this world that has been in the covenant relationship with, with Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Again, it's Israel. And I understand it's popular and there's t-shirts and refrigerator magnets and all kinds of household knickknacks and whatnot. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, that's not the United States of America. Okay, That's Israel. Quit claiming their promises. At best, we can adapt them as principles. But when we pray to God, let's just be honest about it and say, God, we are not your people. We are not called by your name. We are, a, we are a, an idolatrous Gentile people who deserve your wrath. And, uh, and just lay it out there and say, for the sake of the remnant, for the sake of positive believers, if ten righteous could have spared Sodom, what, what, what does it take today that's keeping America afloat? And pray on that basis. All right, so... Uh, you will be my people. I will walk among you and be your God. You shall be my people. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Okay? He didn't do that for America. He did that for Israel. Now, it'd be great if the chapter ended in verse 13. <laughs> it would be great if, uh, if everything was just blessings and obedience and joy. But sadly, that's not reality, okay? We have a great big but in verse 14, and it's going to talk about 
the, the other side. God shows himself faithful either way. He's faithful to bless when Israel is walking in the light. And he is faithful to discipline when Israel is rejecting his will. Okay, Because he's their father. He loves them. Who is there among you that's without discipline? You know, fathers discipline their sons. That's what fathers do. So we have the but if you do not obey me. Before I get to that, some notes here under point four. For the covenant theocratic nation of Israel, there are statutes and commandments to be carried out. For Gentile nations functioning under analogous principles, there are no statutes or commandments, but three specific divine expectations. And I want to be clear on this. We're not under Mosaic law. We don't have statutes not given by God and expected to be obeyed. Even when we're functioning under analogous principles, we still don't have statutes given by God. We do have three specific divine expectations. First of all, we're expected to seek Him, living in accountability to Him. This is for every Gentile nation in the history of the world. Acts 17, verses 26 through 31. This was Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, okay, given in Acts chapter 17. How God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, okay? I think in the old King James it said one blood. It's just, really, it's just one. He made from one all, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So it, it doesn't matter if you're American or Russian or Ukrainian or, or Mexican or whatever you are, okay? Every nation descends from Adam and he has expectations for these nations. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You know, Ukraine was birthed in 1992 after the fall of the Soviet Union and maybe they're going to get conquered and they're going to stop being a nation now. We don't know how this is all going to turn out. But if it does, who's in charge of that? God's the one that determines their appointed boundaries and uh, and the times and boundaries of their habitation. But now notice the purpose clause, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And so a nation that provides for gospel presentations, the nation that provides for freedom to study the Bible and learn and grow, a nation that provides for God to be found by guaranteeing that churches can operate and the Bible can be taught and the gospel can be preached in freedom, then we are lining ourselves up for this kind of blessing that they would seek God, though he is not far from each one of uh, each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Amazing how Paul Poet's a pagan poet. Uh, by the way, don't look him up. I don't recommend you read anything else that poet ever wrote. But this, this uh, phrase is okay. Being the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So a Gentile nation has the expectation, God has the expectation that every Gentile nation in this earth will make the provision for him to be found, seeking him and living in accountability to him. 
Second expectation for a Gentile nation, keeping land allotment undefiled by minimizing innocent bloodshed and fornication. God expects, and because the Canaanites failed at this, He removed them. The Canaanites had totally uh, despoiled their land. They had defiled their land. Fornication defiles a land, innocent bloodshed defiles a land, idolatry defiles a land. Those three things. And uh, we saw it in Leviticus 18. You know, this world gets wrapped up in in pollution, right? Straws in the ocean or whatever else. They've got, they're all concerned about landfills and, and, uh, and, and recycling and all this stuff. And, and, okay, I'm, I'm not mocking that, but I'm saying let's get a sense of proportion here. Let's understand, and I'm not pro-pollution. I'm not advocating, you know, dirty air. I, I, I like clean air. I like clean water. What I am saying, though, is above and beyond any physical uh, pollution that can take place in a land is the spiritual pollution that takes place in the land. And this is what fornication, bloodshed, and idolatry produces. And it defiles the land. Okay? So do not defile yourselves. And then it says, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled, the land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. The the actual land vomits as far as God is concerned. And it's puking up the inhabitants that God says, that's not your land anymore. He determines the times and the boundaries of habitation and says, you guys are done. This is no longer your land. Got Numbers 35 and Psalm 106 as well. Shedding innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. So that was the full trifecta there. All that rampant fornication, all of the idolatry, all of the innocent bloodshed, sacrificing their, uh, their infants to Moloch. They became unclean in their practices and they played the harlot in their deeds. So, for a Gentile nation, let's keep our land allotment undefiled by minimizing the innocent bloodshed and the fornication. You know, if we make the, if we make the, the, uh, the morality consistent with biblical morality, then even unbelievers can operate on a moral basis and not be defiling the land. And then finally, blessing the Jewish people. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. If a Gentile nation wants to continue existing, bless the Jewish people. If a Gentile nation wants to be removed from human history, start cursing the Jewish people. All right? And uh, because those whom curse Israel, God will curse. That's the Gentile recipe. Let's get back to the Jewish recipe. Divine national discipline for the covenant theocratic nation of Israel is administered through increasingly intensive cycles of national declination. I'm using the word declination because it represents a decline. It is God's administrative justice showing the increasing, inten- increasingly intensive cycles of national decline. And I colored, or, uh, I did a lot of coloring in this chapter. I, in, in a lot of ways, I never left kindergarten. I still like to color. I like to, uh, to spotlight things that, that help. 
And you're going to see this pattern repeated. If you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. Remember the Mosaic covenant is conditional and it can be broken. And they they broke it a lot in the Old Testament. So I in turn will do this to you. Now here's the first cycle of discipline. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away also. You will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. And um, we see it repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, this was happening all the time. Every time they plunged into their idolatry and rejected God's will. So declination number one, dread, disease, deficits, and defeat. But notice there's an opportunity for repentance. If. Notice in verse 18, if also after these things you do not obey me. That means... All of, the, all of the things that were applied in cycle number one were geared towards their repentance. And they have to harden their heart to not be repentant after going through that and going through the next and going through the next. There's actually an opportunity for repentance followed by a sevenfold repetition of declination number one. If after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. That could speak of sequentially seven times, or could speak of intensively seven times more severe. Um, it, it is also rather idiomatic, just speaking of the increased uh, application of cycle number one because they're not repentant. Then he moves on to cycle number two. I will also break down your pride of power. I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce. The trees of the land will not yield fruit. You have drought and depression for declination number two. Again, opportunity for repentance, opportunity um, uh, that repentance comes with a sevenfold repetition of declination number two. Some people have tried to to chart these things out and try to pinpoint in, in American history, what cycle is America in right now? Well, gee, back in um, the Vietnam War, we suffered defeat before our enemies, and let's let's plot that on here, and let's talk about the the Great Depression, and let's talk about um, not eating our own food, and, and just other things. The problem is, you're trying to put the United States of America onto a format that has nothing to do with us, right? This is Israel's promise, not our promise. We're not entitled to five cycles. We're not entitled to two cycles. All right, delinquency. Uh, Declination number three. Delinquency, juvenile, crime waves, and gang activity. Some people think that these animals here are zoological animals. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field which will bereave you. Now notice the beasts of the field. That is often used of of zoological animals. It often is used of the, the wild animals that cannot be tamed or domesticated. But it can also be used idiomatically which will bereave you of your children. 
and destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your roads lie deserted. You end up with um, you know, crime waves, gang activity. Your roads are deserted because no one wants to be seen on the streets. Uh, the streets aren't safe. There's other things that can happen there. Declination number four, defeat. And um, I'm not so sure about the distinction between domestic defeat versus foreign defeat, but earlier it seemed like the defeat maybe was on foreign soil, and this now seems to be defeat on domestic soil. I can, I can, I can see that, I guess. That's how Colonel Thiem taught it, and, I, and it makes sense, you know, related to, you know, being defeated over there is one thing, but being defeated here is entirely worse. You know, you always want to have any warfare you don't want in your land. You want to be elsewhere because uh, of the collateral damage and civilians and loss of life and other things that happen. But when the war comes here, then we get the full meal deal. So if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. Again, America doesn't have a covenant. This is for Israel. And it's vengeance for the covenant. When you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven. They will bring back your... uh, bread and rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Even this, more repentance opportunities. How gracious is God? I mean, I wouldn't have put up with half of this, right? I mean, once or twice, okay, we're done. Yet in spite of this, if you do not obey me but act with hostility against me, I will act with wrathful hostility against you. I, even I, will punish you seven times more for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I mean, cannibalism just to survive. And historically, this happened. It happened in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. It happened again in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And they were besieged and starving. I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols. For my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well. I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your soothing aromas. Notice they still stay religious. Even though they've been walking in darkness for ages now. They have endured all of these cycles of discipline and it's just hardening their hearts all the more. You would think it's just flagrant uh, fornication, flagrant adultery, flagrant idolatry, flagrant uh, non-biblical way of life. But they still keep the sacrifices going. Because, you know, I guess it doesn't hurt to be religious, right? <laughs> oh, it's a theory. Give it up. Phony religion doesn't solve anything. So, um, I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. So, yeah, the invaders come in and they're like, eh. <laughs> I'm not sure we want this land. Look at, look, at, look at this wrath. Wrath poured out. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then notice what happens. There's a benefit that happens. When they are taken into captivity, and this happens historically after the book of uh, Jeremiah, after Second Kings, when they're brought into captivity into Babylon, 
Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation. The land gets a break. All of that defilement, all of that pollution, all of that vomiting. And now it gets to recover. All the days of its desolation, I will observe the rest. It will observe the rest, which it did not observe on your Sabbath while you were living on it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. And the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword they will fall. Just the ongoing, lingering consequences of divine discipline is just a, a, a paranoia. An absolute fear over everything. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing. And you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies. But you will perish among the nations and your enemy's land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their, the iniquity, their iniquity in the lands of your enemies. Also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. It's not fun to be a, a captive people, to be a, a displaced people, to live in a diaspora, for example, when, uh, because your people group doesn't have a homeland anymore. And so you're living in other homelands. You, there's other people groups that have sovereignty over the nation that you're residing in. Uh, you are a displaced people at that point. Which gets us to a great big if and a happy promise of restoration. Because Israel does enjoy an unconditional covenant relationship with the Lord that precedes that conditional covenant relationship with the Lord, right? When the covenant of Moses came in as, as a conditional covenant, the one that they broke, the one that leads to their captivity, that came 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant. And in no way did it invalidate the Abrahamic covenant. That still is in effect. It is still eternal. It is still unconditional. It is still grounded in the faithfulness of the I am. And he will bring them back. So Israel enjoys an unconditional covenant relationship with the Lord and has a promise of national restoration following national destruction and dispersion. And it's spoken of here, it's spoken of at the end of Deuteronomy, it's spoken of repeatedly, all on the basis of that Abrahamic covenant that preceded the law of Moses. So if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well. I will remember the land. Because remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He renames Jacob Israel. The unconditional nature of that Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbath while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord your God. Okay? So let's just say the Ukrainians lose their land. Will they ever get it back? I don't know. Nobody knows. God's in charge of that. They don't have a covenant promise to that land. Not like Israel. 
But I'll remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of all the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So um, this unconditional covenant is why Israel has promised a future, why they have a destiny that no other Gentile nation is promised. No Gentile nation enjoys such an unconditional covenant relationship with the Lord. All right, you can't find one. You can't you know, show me biblically if I'm wrong on this. I don't see it. Okay, I can see little glimmers of some blessings in the millennium, but I don't see a covenant relationship like he has with Israel. So no Gentile nation has a promise of national restoration following national destruction and dispersion. Even so, God is merciful and does grant a time for repentance as he measures the completion of a Gentile nation's iniquity. And honestly, I can't, uh, you know, we, we can cling to this. We've got this phrase in Genesis fifteen sixteen, where God says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. This is where uh, God is promising Abraham that his descendants are going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be enslaved. They're going to be oppressed for 400 years. He's giving Abraham the prophecy of of Egypt, the prophecy of the the bondage in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. Afterward, they will come out with many possessions. That's the Exodus. And they plundered Egypt in the Exodus. They came out wealthy in the Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. He will be buried at a good old age. He dies at the age of 175. By the way, that also argues for the Septuagint numbers rather than the Hebrew numbers of Genesis 5 and 11. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. Now notice, the timing is perfect. Why do they have to be slaves for 400 years? Why can't they just be slaves for 200 years or 100 years? Why, why do these generations have to pass? Because Canaan is not yet vomiting the, the, the Amorites, the Canaanites. Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In the mercy of God, he's giving them a forbearance, an opportunity to be humbled, an opportunity to repent. I ask myself, is the iniquity of the American complete? <laughs> or are we going to repent? Are we, as a nation, I'm not talking about, you know, present company excluded, preaching to the choir here. I'm talking about America as a population base. Are we godly or are we idolatrous? Do we uphold the widow and the orphan or do we victimize? Shedding of innocent blood and fornication and idolatry. I think our, our uh, iniquity is, if it's not complete yet, it's getting close. So pray for that. Pray for that. Because we don't have a promised restoration. All right, well, that wraps up Leviticus 26. We will get to Leviticus 27 after the break. We'll come back at the top of the hour. That will finish Leviticus. We're going to wrap up next hour. It's a tough hour. Um, Leviticus 27 and then Numbers chapter 1. My intention is to blast through Leviticus 27 as quick as I can because I want to have maximum time for Numbers chapter 1. It's, uh, there's a lot to set the table there. There's a lot to deal with with the census that's taken and the numbers that we have to sort out. So 
Um, let's take our break and we'll come back at the top of the hour for day 59. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for the living and abiding word of God. I thank you for the stability that it provides. I thank you for divine viewpoint perspective whereby we're not, we're not um, tossed to and fro. We're not freaking out because of news coverage and, and all the things of our generation, Father. We can stand firm. Uh, we have an anchor which enters within the veil and I thank you that, that we can stand there with him before your glory. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.